Welcome to Mercy House. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here. If you are elementary age uh, kiddo, you can go down to the class. There is the teacher. Okay. We, just, you know, we usually have teachers down there with the kids, but I didn't know. You know, it's summer and everything. And... No, I'm kidding. Sometimes we have to quiet the teacher down, not the kids, but it's okay. We'll, we'll work on that. <laughs> so we're in the sermon series brief. Uh, what we're doing is going through the shortest books in the New Testament. So we've been through 2 John. We're finishing up 3 John today. We'll be in uh, Jude next week. And so what we've found out about 3 John is that it's a letter to a, a person, Gaius. So it's not to a church, but to a, an actual person. And it's commending him for supporting missions and encouraging him to keep doing that. And we've said that what missions is, uh, is when the church sends people out to take a gospel witness somewhere that doesn't have an adequate gospel witness. So they pray for those people, that they give money to the people, they give encouragement, but for the purpose of that person or the group of persons going and bringing the gospel where it doesn't uh, have an adequate witness. John gives a negative example of what you, what you uh, shouldn't do, and that's uh, Diotrephes, we talked about him last week, who's actually rejecting the missionaries as they come through and are in need of aid. He doesn't help them, and then when people in his church try to help them, he throws them out of the church. And so definitely a ne negative example of, of, of what one does uh, for missions. But uh, what we look at today is the positive example, Demetrius. And Demetrius is described in these verses kind of as the poster child of someone who does good. And I think doing good, for, for most human beings, there is kind of an innate desire to do good. It's not just Christians who do good and want to do good. It's in, in, in some way all, all human beings want to do Good. Recently in the news, I was reading about Mackenzie Bezos. Mackenzie Bezos was married to Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com. Maybe some of you have heard of that, Amazon.com. Yeah, okay. Um, and they got a divorce, and she got a divorce settlement of $35 billion. So she's made a commitment to give away half of that, $17.5 billion dollars. And she's doing this as part of uh, being part of the giving pledge is what it's called. And this was started by Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett. And what they're trying to do with this giving pledge is to get people with means to give away half of all their assets to charity. Mackenzie says this, No drive has more positive ripple effects than the desire to be of service. There are lots of resources each of us can pull from our safes to share with others. Time, attention, knowledge, patience, creativity, talent, effort, humor, compassion. And so it's interesting to me that she, she says this desire, it's like a drive. And as far as I know, Mackenzie Bezos is, is not a Christian, but she communicates this, this desire, this drive to, to do good. And what I want to tell you this morning from this text from 3 John it's how you can do more good than even Mackenzie Bezos. 
more good than someone that has $17 million, billion dollars, excuse me, to give away. So in this passage, what we see is a definition of good. If you're going to do good, you need to define what good really is. And then once you define what good really is, how to then go about doing good. And then thirdly, it addresses what if I'm not good? What if I'm actually evil? Then what? Right? So we're going to look at all three of those things. Define good, how to do good once you define it, and then what to do about it if we find ourselves to be evil. So I'm going to read this again. Third John, if you, if you haven't picked up a Bible yet, maybe you should do that so you can follow along with me. It'll be a help to you. It's toward the back of your Bibles. Third John. And yeah, okay. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So how do we define good? Well, there's this phrase in there from verse 11. He says, whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. He's letting us know that good originates in God. This is throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible. Um, Jesus is talking to this rich young ruler who comes to him and asks a very important question. Luke 18, 18, and a ruler asked him, good, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see what he's doing there? He's, 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 he's letting him know that there's only one source, one origination of good, and that is God. And it's always God. No human being can ever be good or do good apart from God. So if someone is good or something is good, it has its origination in God. James 1, 16 through 18, writes this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. It's interesting, he opens that little passage there, don't be deceived. It's easy to be deceived about this. To actually begin to believe that good things and good people and good attributes, that somehow these things might not have their origination in God. But he lets us know, good and God always go hand in hand. So warm sunshine, it's from God. Tasty food, from God. Right? You want to look through those things to God, through warm sunshine, to God, through tasty food, to God. He is the originator. Supportive friendship, God. Loving marriage originates in God. Meaningful work, God. Beautiful colors, God. Coffee, God. Right? I mean, you can look through coffee. I mean, for some of you, you some pretty strong coffee, but you can look through coffee to God. 
right? Everything good originates with God. Now, you think, you know, I think the pushback is, well, are you saying that people who don't believe in God, they don't follow God, they don't care about God, that they can't do any good? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the good that's in them, the good things that they do, still trace back to God. That He created every human being. And every human being bears His image. Whether they believe in God or don't believe in God, their origination still is in God. And so if there's anything good that comes from their lives, it comes from God. So this is our definition of good. Our definition of good is God. Anything that's good, we can trace it back to God. I think this is helpful because sometimes we get confused about what's good and what's not good. I think, for instance, this, this month we're finishing up in our, in our society Pride Month. I think Christians are kind of unsure. Is, is, is this something I should affirm? Is it something I'm not affirming? Is it good? Is it bad? What is it? How do I know? And how do we know as we go back to God? And we, and we try to figure out, is, is this a good thing as it relates to God? And it's a complicated answer, right? Because I think what Pride Month does on one hand is it says that all people have dignity and worth and should be respected. And that, that, that's part of the uh, what we're experiencing is, is kind of this pushback by a group of folks that have been mistreated greatly. They've been hurt. And so they're, they're trying to say, I, I have dignity, I have worth, I want to be treated with respect. And that is, that is true of every human being. But what's also being said in Pride Month is that we should affirm every kind of sexual expression. And then when we go back to God, we go back to His Word, we, we find that God's design for sexuality is that it's to be expressed inside marriage and that marriage is a man and a woman. And that's not very popular at all in our culture. But that's what's good. In fact, when He created that in Genesis, He says it's good. And any other sexual expression outside of that, whether it be a heterosexual expression or homosexual expression, it is not good if it's outside of husband and wife in a covenant marriage. The same would be true of greed and consumerism, right? We look at the greed and consumerism in our culture and we say, is that good? We go back, look at God, and we see God, He's generous. He's a giver, not a taker. And we realize, oh, greed and consumerism, this is not good. Even though advertisers and just the general spirit of the age is that this is the ultimate. And it, and it is, in fact, evil and not good. So, our definition of good is rooted in God. Now, if I know that, then what do I do about it? How do I then do good based on my new definition? Well, I imitate God. Simple enough, right? Imitate God. Again, verse 11. This little verse is chock full of really good truth, right? Beloved, do not, do not imitate evil, right? But imitate good. 
whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. You see it there. But the person who's doing good is seeing God, and they're imitating God. And those who don't see God cannot do good. This is the core problem of evil people, which is all of us, okay? Spoiler alert, by the time we get to the end of the sermon, I'm going to have us all evil, right? Because we are all evil. And we'll talk more about what that means. But our biggest problem is not that we're doing wrong behaviors or we're, 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 we're breaking rules. It's that we don't clearly see God. That's why John does this little switch where he says, whoever does evil has not seen God. It's really odd when it, when, it, when it rolls off there. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what I expected. I expected the person who does evil is not following the rules. But it's, they haven't seen God. And, and this is absolutely catastrophic for the human race, that we cannot see God. It's what Paul describes in Romans 1. He's describing this process of people turning away from goodness and toward evil, and, 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 and the process, well, listen to the process. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so he's talking about bad behaviors, right? Unrighteousness, ungodliness, and then he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his indivisible, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what he's describing is a humanity that, that once could see God. They knew God. But they started to lose the vision of who that God truly was. And so, as C.S. Lewis writes, they kind of became bent. They were supposed to be face-to-face with God, seeing God, but in the fall, because of sin and its effects, they became bent and no longer looked at God, and their hearts became darkened. So now they're worshiping other things besides God. And then it plays out in their behavior. This is the next part of Romans 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and they serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So here's what Paul's doing as he, as he weaves in this, this sort of a, a explanation of why people behave the way that they do. He starts with futile thinking, wrong thinking about God. And then wrong thinking about God leads to wrong worship. Because if you can't see God for who he really is, you can't really worship him rightly. If you think wrongly about God and you worship in a way that's false, you then begin to behave in ways that are evil. It's more complicated than we often realize, right? We think, well, there's right and there's wrong. Just do what's right. It's a deeper issue than that. It's rooted in whether or not we can see God. So how how can we turn this around? 
It's obvious that it's more than just, here's some rules, just follow these rules. All those, those rules do find their origination in God, right? These rules are good that we find in Scripture, God's commands, they're good. But they're good because they originate in God. So in order to correct this problem, we've got to work up the chain and we've got to get our thinking renewed. Paul writes in Romans 12, instead of futility of thinking, he's saying you're being renewed, transformed um, because of your, your new thoughts, right? Do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. A.W. Tozer, he's a 20th century pastor and writer. Uh, he, this is probably his most famous quote. Uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Right? That's what I'm talking about. Is this renewal of our minds and, and our understanding of God. If we get that right, it's then going to take care of everything else. He goes on to explain more in more detail after that quote. He says, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base, meaning impure, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives that God is to be like. We tend, to be, to, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is their idea of God. This is where it all begins. If we're going to do good, we must rightly see the good God. And as, as Tozer points out, not just as an individual, but as a community, right? As a church, we, we are seeing rightly, as best we can, the one true God. And that is then leading us to a healthy community who's on a healthy mission, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Now, not only is that conversation about us as individuals and us as a church, but it's also about how the world sees God. Because the world is looking in at the church and individual Christians to figure out who God is. Jesus speaks this way on a number of occasions. Matthew 5, he says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See what he's doing there? He's saying people see your good works, they should work up the chain back to a good God. And so this, this, this seeing God rightly, worshiping God rightly, doing good in response to that, not only affects us, our church, but it affects the world, those that are outside of Christ looking in. Jesus mentions this again in Matthew 5. And he's talking about loving your enemies. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, that sounds like a, a good command, right? You should love your enemies. You ought to love your enemies. Now, go and do that. But now listen to how he thinks about 
its origination. He says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you see what he's doing there? He talks, he talks about a command of loving our enemies and praying for them. But then he works back to the origination of that behavior, which is the goodness of God. And he says, God is good. And he's good to both the just and the unjust. Today, this rain's coming down, and it's, 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 it's bringing life from, from the vegetation and the yard. But it's not just raining on Christian yards. It's raining on everyone's yard. Whether they're Christian or not Christian, whether they're apathetic to the gospel or hostile to the gospel... He's giving something good. If you think rain's good, I mean, it is. It's good. He's giving good to everyone. And so he's saying, be like your dad in heaven. Imitate him. But if you don't, you don't have a right view of who God is, then you won't do that, right? But if you do have a right view, you will do good. You will imitate your father. Now, you may be thinking, well, okay, then what will I be doing? I mean, loving my enemies, okay, that would be one thing. But what, what all will I be doing if I'm imitating God? Well, that's a large topic, right? There's a lot of things you're going to be doing as you imitate your Father in heaven. But I think what we want to ask ourselves is, what's Demetrius doing? And this is what's in our text here. What, what is Demetrius doing that's causing him to be held up as the poster child for doing good? And, and check out verse 11. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Here's what he's doing. He's one of these traveling evangelists that's going to stop by Gaius' church and need help, need money, need encouragement, need prayer, need to be sent back to the, sent to the next location. He's a gospel witness. What Demetrius is doing that's so good is evangelism. That's what he's doing. He's doing evangelism. And, and John is pointing to this and saying that, that this is good, and, and truly this is the greatest good that any, any Christian could do, is to give the gospel to people who don't yet have it. The gospel saves now and forevermore. What good could you do that has a shelf life of eternity? One thing. And that is to commend the gospel to people who have not yet heard the gospel. You hear Jesus doing this constantly, but here's one example. He's talking to a woman at a well. She's, she's, she's not yet heard of the gospel, and she's there to draw water at the well. Jesus says to her in John 4, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here for, to, uh, to draw water. So what is he doing there? She's there thinking, I need water. And she does. And Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 I know you need water, but what you need more than water, you need the gospel. 
You need living water. You need a, a spring of water to well up in you that is going to sustain you both now and forevermore. Now, again, does that mean that people don't need water and that we shouldn't do humanitarian things as Christians? No, absolutely we should. But we should always tie it to the gospel. Because this is the greatest need that any of us will ever have is the need for the gospel. It is the greatest good. And why is this so important? Why is it so important that everyone get the gospel? I mean, come on. Well, the reason that it's so important is because all of us are evil and none of us are good. We need to be made good by a gift from God. None of us has any hope of being good. In fact, when we're in an evil state and we see God, our reaction is to run and hide. You see this over and over in the Bible. One very famous part in Scripture where you see this is in Isaiah 6. Isaiah has just had this vision of God, and this is his reaction. Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He realizes I'm evil, and everybody around me is evil. And in light of your goodness, God, your holiness, well, I don't, we don't have a chance. And he's right, unless God does something to gift us with goodness. And that, of course, is what he does. That's what he's doing at the cross, the all-good Jesus, the Holy One. He, he's on the cross dying. Why? For evil people like you and me. So that we could be gifted goodness. We could be made good by grace through faith. Now, this is hard for some of you because you're like, I'm not evil. I'm not that evil. Then you're not ready for the gospel yet. If you're not ready to receive this bad news that you are evil, and again, when I say you're evil, I'm not saying that every part of you is, is evil. I'm saying every part of you is tainted by sin and its effects. But there are absolutely good things that come out of your life. Absolutely. You are an image bearer of God. You can love, you can serve, you, you can do a lot of good things. But in light of a holy God, a good God, you're evil. And because of that, you're separated from God. And you will not be brought back into the presence of the good God unless you receive by faith what Christ has done on the cross. And it's at that cross that you can receive this gift of goodness. It also means that there's no one so bad that they can't be made good. I'm sure there's some of you in that category too. You're just thinking there's no way that by grace through faith I could be made good. Absolutely you can be made good. My wife and I, we, we watched this documentary on uh, this church that had a shooting back a couple years ago. And uh, the, the documentary is called Emmanuel because that's the name of the church. And uh, what happened there is that there was a small Bible study meeting in this historically African-American church in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, where the Civil War began, all right? And this young man, white supremacist, walks in. They welcome him. He sits down at the Bible study. Uh, he listens to the entire Bible study, and they, they bow their heads to pray. He pulls out a gun, and he shoots nine out of ten of them. He then runs. They take him into custody. 
and they have a bond hearing for him. And the judge does an unprecedented thing. He lets the, vic- the families of the victims speak to this shooter. And it's not in person, it's through a two-way video conferencing. But he stands there and faces his accusers. And one by one, these victims' families get up and they offer him forgiveness. It's powerful. And, and they don't just say, it's no big deal, you're forgiven. They say, you shot my spouse, you shot my child, you shot my friend. But I forgive you. And they would plead with him to go to Christ for mercy on his soul. A lot of people didn't understand that. They actually made some people really mad that they did that. But they understood the goodness of God. None of us is good in and of ourselves. We are evil. Except by the grace of God, given to us through the cross of Christ. We will not be good unless it's given as a gift. So perhaps you've never admitted that. Maybe this is new to you. You're saying, I've never heard that. I thought being a Christian was just trying to try harder, you know? No, that's not, that's not the start of the Christian life. The start of the Christian life is I'm evil and I need to be made good by a gift of grace. So if you've never received that gift, receive it this morning by faith. Reach out to God in prayer. Even now, maybe when we're, we're singing and doing communion, just reach out to him, ask him to forgive you. No matter what evil resides in you right now, he can gift you with good. Now, once you receive that gift, then you get the opportunity to grow in goodness. So the sense in which you are made good once and for all, there's also a sense in which you are, practically speaking, becoming good, better and better, and looking more like God. So how do you do that? Well, three things. Uh, One is you need to take in truth. That's why you're here today. You're singing truth. You're hearing truth preached. You're going to see truth in the bread and the cup. And through that truth, you're seeing God with the eyes of your heart. Truth seems to be a big deal in 3 John. Verse 3, the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Verse 8, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. He personifies truth in that last verse. It's like the truth itself is saying, yes, Demetrius, he's a good guy. He's done good. He is good. And so if if we're going to correct the futility of our thinking, like we talked about in Romans 1, we're going to have to take in truth. So we're getting rid of of lies, we're getting rid of false perceptions of God, and we're replacing that with truth from God's Word. And that's a lifelong process. If you've walked with Jesus any amount of time, you know what I'm talking about. You're reading the Bible, you're hearing the Bible taught, you're discussing it in a small group, over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit, with, with much grace, just revealing, ah, you were thinking wrongly about this part of God's character. Now, think this way. Why is that so important? Because then it, it, it allows you to worship the one true God, not just some God of your own making. And then as you worship the one true God, you're able to obey his commands, not because you're trying to do the right thing, but because you're actually trying to worship God, which results in doing the right thing. This past week, I met with the elders 
for an early morning breakfast. And we met this particular time to talk about what we were calling the teaching diet of the church. Talking about what would be preached over the next 12 months. What will be discussed in small groups and discipleship groups or maybe supplemental things like retreats. We, we, why is that so important? Because we know that if we don't deposit the truth in you on a regular basis in an effective way, that you're not going to be able to see who God truly is and then you're not going to worship Him for who He truly is and you're not going to live lives that bring glory and honor to Him. So take in the truth. Number two, live in Christian community. Live in Christian community. Again, hear this verse 12 again about Demetrius. Has, he's received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. He also, we, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius is in community. Demetrius, he didn't just show up at church one day. He's like, I want to be a missionary. And everybody's like, who are you? They were like, yeah, totally, you should be a missionary. We know you. We've walked with you. We've seen you grow in the truth. Of course, here's our letter of recommendation. And he's even in community with, with at least one apostle, with John, perhaps more, who are, who are saying, we're in community with this guy, and we know that, 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 that he is walking in the truth. But it lets us know that, that this whole taking in of truth is something that we do in community, not just alone. And again, this is, this is why we're doing discipleship groups. We're doing small groups. Why, why do we do that? It's because we want to live that truth out and learn that tr- truth in community. Some of you who are members of the church, you've not yet gone through the discipleship uh, materials. Guess what? You're going to get an email in August. Some of you got this email, right? And some of you signed up for discipleship groups. If you still haven't signed up, we're going to email you again, and, and we're going to Gently nudge, hey, we want you to do discipleship groups. We want you to walk in the truth. We feel like this is an important thing to do in community. And then thirdly, how you grow in goodness is that you give the greatest good away in giving away the gospel. So if you provide volunteer hours in the community, awesome. Don't forget that the greatest need is the gospel. You help your neighbor by mowing their yard or taking care of their kids. Keep that up. Don't forget your neighbor's greatest need is the gospel. You participate in cleaning up the environment, opposing uh, sex trafficking, bringing racial justice to our society. Well done. Don't forget that the greatest need of any and all is the gospel. It is the gospel. And so while Mackenzie Bezos is going to do a lot of good with her $17 billion, if she's not doing that, ultimately for the cause of the gospel, she's, she's missing the boat. She's missing it. And you and I, who do not have $17 billion, as far as I know, I mean, if anyone has $17 billion, come talk to me later. Maybe, maybe we could, we could use some, some funding around here for the gospel, okay? But for most of us, we don't have $17 billion in the safe. But we have something greater than $17 billion. Think of that. Right? We look at, look at that. Wow, $17 billion, what amazing things you can do. Jesus says, you could have the whole world. The whole world. That's more than $17 billion. I don't know. I forgot to Google it. I don't know how much it is. But it's a whole bunch of money. And he said, you could have 
all of that and lose your soul. Is it, you, you've lost it. You, you gain nothing. And so you, Christian, as you walk out of here, you've got something greater than $17 billion. You have the, the greatest grace gift that could ever be given to someone else, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what I'm offering you this morning. Not $17 billion, but something greater in value, the gospel. So again, those of you, you've, you've never gone to God in faith and said, I'm evil, you're good, and I need the gift of goodness that comes through the cross of Christ. Do that this morning. And for those of us that we've, we've received that as, as a way to, to, to tell that, to profess that, we'll come down here in a minute and we'll receive the bread and the cup. We're rehearsing when we receive the grace gift, the, the, the greatest good that we could have ever received, a good that has a shelf life of eternity. And we're reminded when the good, the holy, the perfect Jesus, the one who didn't just do the right thing on the outside, but had the inward attitudes and the, and the holy thoughts to go with the obedient commands. He's the one who took bread and broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So he's saying, I'm establishing a new community, and I'm doing this by giving that community this greatest gift, this greatest good goodness that could ever be given. He says, so as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. So as you come forward, those of you that are Christ followers, I encourage you to, to, to do that and to receive that bread with open hand, receiving that, remembering that gift of goodness that you were given before you did anything to deserve it, and the gift of goodness that you need in an ongoing way to continue to grow in goodness. It's still by grace through faith. It's not try harder. It's still by grace through faith. So this is a great reminder of our need and desperation for the grace of the gospel, both when we become a Christian and as we grow in goodness. While that's going on, I'll be in the back with a few other folks uh, for prayer. If you, if you have something that you'd like prayed for or you want to come back pray for me, you're welcome to do that. I'm always in need of prayer. But if you're not a Christian this morning, we're really glad you're here. Uh, but we're going to ask you to remain in your seat and uh, to think about what you're hearing and uh, to, to talk to somebody after the service. I'd be happy to talk to you, or perhaps there's somebody else here you know uh, better that you could have that conversation with. But if you're not a Christ follower, we're going we're to ask you to remain in your seat. So let's pray. Lord, we, we often say this, God is good all the time, Lord, and, and uh, it is true. And we know that we know that we know it's true because you've proven it. You've proven it at the cross. And you poured out your goodness on evil humanity in a way that it's, it's awe-inspiring, Lord. And it is our clearest snapshot of who you really are. 
a God who is full of grace and mercy, a God who is just and deals with sin. All of that happening at the cross. And so, Lord, as we take this bread and take this cup, Lord, help, help the eyes of our hearts see you for who you are. Respond with true worship and the absolute unconditional surrender of our lives to you, Lord. Please bless this cup, bless this bread, our time together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.